Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Good evening, good afternoon, good day. I'm George Foriado and I'm the executive producer of Surviving Society's Alternative to Women's Hour. And here are some of my favourite bits. Are you interested in some further reading on social movements and left politics? You should be if you're listening to Surviving Society. Red Pepper is a quarterly magazine and website of politics and culture. It is a space for debate on the left and a home for open-minded socialists. Red Pepper is reader-funded with a sliding scale subscription model, ensuring its content is available to all. Find a link to Red Pepper magazine in the episode notes. This is a trigger warning to let you guys know that this episode at times contains conversations and sensitive material that people might find difficult to listen to. These characters who are like, oh, lived experience, that's another way of talking about identity politics. All of these people must be ignored and frankly laughed at because they're not actually understanding what the dynamics are. Lived experience is a foundational concept of black feminism because we take seriously black women's lived experiences because black women's lived experiences haven't mattered to much of anyone besides black women themselves. There's literally a whole social movement called Black Lives Matter because lots of different kinds of Black people's experiences do not matter, right? Or caste is not being valuable, right? And so lived experience is a, trying to understand the dynamics of lived experiences kind of is foundational work. It's, it's how you honor your ancestors. It's how you do good social science. It's so many things. And also the, this idea that lived experience is somehow divorced from kind of the material reality realities of the world. I mean, I'm just like even saying that is embarrassing to me because I just don't think I understand how anyone can think that when we're talking about the experiences of women of color, that we're not also talking about hidden injury class. And we're not also talking about the fact that women of color over concentrated in low paid work. And during the pandemic, women of color who are more likely to be working in the service sector and the most precarious positions are those who have lost their jobs during this moment. My God. And so to think that we would even want to or would be able to separate race, class and gender from these dynamics, I don't get it. But also what it shows is folks haven't read. You know, my God, I always tell people that the Black feminists of the 70s and early 80s wrote everything that was ever needed to be known about anything. (laughs) Because all you have to do is so like, you know, so in that um, Politics of Exhaustion paper, we kind of quote Bernice Johnson Regan. This is a classic text on kind of coalition politics written in the early 80s because they were fed up and exhausted. Reading the the Combi River Collective, all of these folks, they said it before and they'll say it again. And we just, we refuse to learn these lessons because we're not taking Black women's lived experiences seriously. So I just would ask all of you guys to go away, spend some time with this bridge called My Back. 
spend some time with homegirls. You know what I mean? You know, spend some time with all the women are white, all the blacks are men, but some of us are brave. Spend some time with kind of the various anthologies on black British feminism, in particular, our kinds of dreams. And yeah, so please go spend some time and read that because these folks were also working in a moment of national catastrophe, right? Of, of deep economic crisis. And they're able to theorize, guess what, from their lived experience about race, class, and gender. So, you know what, first is tragedy, then as far as, or is it first? Is, yeah, so that's where we are at the moment. I tweeted like, oh, hashtag me too, because mm. yeah, like my life is filled with, yeah, two decades of different instances of sexual harassment. Like mm. that's been a very big part of my life. Like I've not been um, shy about saying that on the podcast. There was something, it was always something very white about the movement, mm. very middle class. And still now to this day, I feel like that. Even though like the movement was put together initially by black women and women of colour. Yeah. I just want to say thank you for writing this book, first Aww. of all. Um, and like, I think it's going to speak to so many people, which the meeting movement didn't really do enough of, I think. I wanted to read a, a section from Gary Kinsman's interview, but just to say that Gary Kinsman is a queer liberation, anti-oppression and anti-capitalist activist in solidarity with Indigenous struggles. Gary's lived most of his life in Toronto and he's organised with the AIDS Activist History Project, the No Pride in Policing Coalition and the Anti-69 Network Against Mythologies of the 1969 Canadian Criminal Code Reform. Gary's into and he's talking about the need for Marxism to be stretched. And I love this. Like, I love this idea of Marxism needing to be stretched. He thinks about queering Marxism. Um, and he says, queering is a practice of denaturalizing the taken for granted from the diverse standpoints of queer people. Queering Marxism is like queering the family, queering the state. If you look at Marxism from the vantage point of the multiple social locations and standpoints of queer people, what does it look like? If you denormalise and denaturalise Marxism in relation to sexuality, what comes into view, both in terms of its limitations and also its possibilities, serves as a really important but also insightful way of thinking about how Marxism needs to be stretched and how it's okay to think about it in ways that are beyond Marx and Engels. I guess it would just be really good if, if either of you could talk how you feel about the way Marxism comes into the book. I would start with is that everyone in the book is an, a militant anti-capitalist. That's the position to which they come through to the organizing and to the thinking they're, they're, they're writing and their praxis. Um, as a matter of fact, in most of the interviews, you will hear the, the, the greatest lament is how people don't talk about capitalism anymore, that some scholars can write about intersectionality and race and gender and class, but without talking about capitalism, which, which is very peculiar. <laughs> um, and, and One of Brenner's lies about intersectionality in the book. Brenna says, intersectionality as an academic insurance policy. I just thought that line was just so good. As in... <laughs> no, no, absolutely. Like that critique around how you can supposedly do intersectionality, a term that has very much a history in anti-capitalism and not mention capitalism really comes through in the various interviews. So that's that, that I would say is the starting point. In the introduction, um, we have a you know, a long thread around historical materialism and how the scholars use historical materialism. Now, on the stretching, interestingly, not all the authors in the book come from the, first, the same Marxian tradition. 
Um, they come from very different histories into Marxism and different organizing. Yet they, there was a number of basics they could all agree on, which, I, which was really refreshing in that you can have that disagreement um, you know, on certain historical matters or different party politics, but you could still have an overall politics of, of discussion and an objective towards social change that you're working towards. Um, in terms of the stretching part, I'll let Brenna speak more about this, but I think all of the authors have really tackled um, questions around race in particular and, and questions around gender in using Marxism in a critical dialogue with Marxism and with, with a lot of tensions, but to really have gotten us to new ways of thinking and new ways of thinking and a new ways of doing, I think, um, organizing with each other that are that are very valuable and sometimes missed uh, because people are so interested in the fight. Um, they sometimes don't frame it as a, like a friendly critique and pushing forward. Um, that's why I also really like the concept of stretching and it, it comes from Fanon actually, while he was speaking about stretching Marx to account for colonialism. Well, I think that the question actually, you know, can be answered in, in slightly different ways. I mean, of course, there's a traditional definition, um, historical materialism, we might kind of define in quite a narrow sense of, um, you know, examining, you know, the material conditions produced by um, a certain economic and political system, i.e. capitalist, capitalist social relations. So I think that, you know, that, there's that quite narrow definition, but one way of thinking about how we engage Marxism, and and I think Rafif is right to point out to the point out the huge diversity in the book between people's engagements with Marxism. So, you know, you have the picking up the phenomenon idea of stretching Marxism, and then Angela Davis saying, well, actually, it's not so much about stretching Marxism as building on its critical insights. So taking its critical insights into fields of study that Marx did not, where Marx did not tread. And all of the Orthodox Marxists who followed him, you know, did not. But another way of thinking about it, we can do the academic discussion of all of these different critical feminist and anti-racist, anti-colonial um, engagements with Marx and Marxist traditions. But we can also just Think about it in a more straightforward way of how did you come to your Marxism? How did you come to your engagement with Marx? And I came to it through reading Angela Davis. When I think about, well, what is my Marxism or how do I approach Marxism? You know, it's, it's actually already through the prisms that Angela Davis, Hamani Banerjee, and many of the other people we interview in the book, but of course, many others have already elaborated, you know, that that's another way of thinking about, well, how do we engage with Marx? It's like, well, how did you come to Marx in the first place? And obviously I am a privileged white woman. So in some ways Me Too was speaking directly to me, but I have had non-paradigm experiences of sexual violence. Mm -hmm. um, so my experiences never fully fit the mainstream narrative. I have political differences with a lot of the mainstream feminism around sexual violence, um, kind of at the extreme end, the sort of anti-sex worker, anti-trans stuff. But also I become more and more uncomfortable with the sort of naming and shaming 
methodology, mm-hmm. I suppose. Um, and um, that had started before Me Too, uh, mm-hmm. but Me Too kind of peaked that, and that was the key strategy of the movement, wasn't it? And I just remember thinking, this isn't right, this isn't going to work, this isn't the way to make a change. Um, and then kind of started writing. Um, and the book draws on bits and pieces that I've published before, but it also draws on my kind of long experience as a sexual violence activist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose I have been in the mainstream of the movement, really, because I've been working on sexual violence in universities, which is very sort of liberal, feminist, mm-hmm. mostly privileged white women, because privileged white women dominate mm-hmm. Um, universities mm-hmm. but also because it's been linked to things like Athena Swan which mm-hmm. is also very white mm-hmm. um, so I guess I come out of the mainstream of the movement but I've always felt a little bit odd mm-hmm. in that mm-hmm. um, and I decided to put that into words and in the process kind of drew on a lot of black feminism I mean I mean the book is grounded very much in black feminism mm-hmm. and other feminisms of color but black feminism mm-hmm. first and foremost well, hopefully people know this by now that using a bunch of $5 words that actually obscures your meaning is not good social science. Like we can all like get all fancy with our big words and our big theories and stuff. The measure of, I think, a, a good social scientist is someone who's able to convey meaning clearly for everybody. And that doesn't mean that's not an anti-intellectual move or a dumbing down, but it's one of those things that just speak clearly, damn. This multi-scale organising was vital to building coalitions between Black and South Asian feminists, coalitions that worked to tackle state-sponsored racism and sexism while openly discussing how communities and individuals are differentially racialized. This required very patient and conscientious work to study how class, race and gender operate in specific historical conjunctures. The analytic link they drew between class and race helped to articulate an inclusive and militant black political identity. As we have noted, there were tensions and contradictions in this form of coalition politics, yet it remains an important moment that foregrounded political unity. That paragraph in itself just literally deals with so many of the kind of like surface level debates that we kind of have at the moment. And we we do we talk about these issues on this podcast like we don't shy away from them. We really try our best to sort of think about the nuances within all all these matters and how difference is understood and or received on the left. But that paragraph, I think. It's just, it's shut, it shut me up now. I'm like, right, let me just re- go back to my revolutionary feminism's introduction just to remind me about what is actually happening, what was happening and what is at stake. You know, we're, we're both nodding our heads vigorously, I guess. <laughs> I'm really glad that you, that you read that paragraph out because um, we wrote the introduction, well, it's been at least a year and a half, I guess, since we wrote it. And this the the kind of work that you you just described so this kind of work that was really a core part of anti-racist feminist organizing you know through the 70s and 80s and of course onwards after that all the way through up until now I, i mean i would say that i don't know how core that kind of thinking is to at least some of the academic discourses around um, anti-racism that we see today. One can often feel like one's in a quite a small minority now, 
when that's the approach that one takes to their anti-racist politics. The idea of really trying to understand structural racism through a feminist framework, which requires us to think about how, you know, race is something that is continually being fabricated, expressed through gender and class, and that, you know, racist discourses and racist formations shift and move and that the terms and the, and the uh, names that we use to describe racism, that they signify different things at different, in different moments of time. And I think that, that the attention to the nuances of how racism operates, sometimes it can feel these days, I, I don't mean to sound like, I, I definitely am not trying to sound like this was somehow better in the past, but that kind of thinking doesn't feel so prevalent these days. I guess that's what I would say. So the, I guess the central concept of, of the book is that concept of political whiteness. Um, and I know there's been a lot of discussion of white feminism recently mm-hmm. um, and white feminism kind of used to denote that feminism that kind of ignores the struggles, the politics, the writing of women of colour. Um, but I guess with political whiteness, I wanted to sort of go broader and deeper than that so I wanted to explore how white feminism is related to other forms of white politics the backlash against feminism but also more reactionary far-right politics even Mm. and and I also wanted to dig deeper into some of the I guess you would call them emotional or affective dynamics which underpin that political whiteness so the first of those is narcissism so focusing on white women's pain to the exclusion of everything else. Um, The second one is a kind of alertness to threat and that threatened whiteness is something that's around us all the time. You know, it's it's Brexit, it's Trump, it's, you know, it's the far right in Europe. But there's also a threatened white femininity, which is at the centre of white feminism. Mm-hmm. Um, and the threat to white women is almost always sexualized, I think. Um, and that has very deep colonial roots, which we can talk about yes. as well. Um, and then the third thing is a kind of will to power or a desire for control. Um, which, again, you can see in Brexit, in Trump, in, you know, in the far right, but also in the naming and shaming, the desire to punish that is often so much a part of white feminism. And I, I do something which is probably quite risky and could be read in lots of different ways, but could be read as a being a bit unkind, I suppose, in linking that will to power to the experience of sexual violence. Mm-hmm. So when you've been sexually violated, you do need to take back control and you're encouraged to take back control in a number of different ways. But when that becomes politicised, especially when it's filtered through privileged whiteness, then it becomes problematic Mm -hmm. because then it's about the kill list. You know, it's about bringing down the powerful men. So political whiteness is... The book's about the political whiteness of the mainstream feminist movement. And by mainstream feminism, I mean corporate feminism, university feminism, kind of mainstream media feminism, but also some forms of social media feminism because social media, well, as you know, it's Mm -hmm. quite a diverse space, but white women do tend to dominate it quite a lot of the time. So I try to kind of explore some of those dynamics through the movement. And one of the dynamics I explore is that kind of process of naming and shaming investing our experiences in the outrage economy of the media um, and what that might do Um, and then also that kind of feminist anger because there's been a lot of discussion of 
women's anger or feminist anger and one of the questions I want to ask is well what do we mean by that what does that hide you know it's just saying women's anger um, because white women's anger can actually be quite problematic mm. when it becomes political especially yeah this is where you we have started to see a shift in how women of color are organizing. So people are still doing public facing work, but what we're also seeing is now this emphasis of going underground and moving outside of the white gaze. Because what we find is that it isn't, it's not, it's not merely that it's not a safe space. And it and, and that's not abstractly, it's not a safe space. It's like literally if people see you doing work particularly with undocumented migrant women, you are going to be attacked. It's well documented. We're coming up to Christmas in the Netherlands. And I would urge people to take a look at all the amazing work on the anti-Zwarte Piet protests. Incredible work that kind of activists in the Netherlands are doing around that. And every year, watching these activists get harassed, and last year, watching them literally in the middle of a meeting, have their meeting disrupted because the far right were, there's these kind of activists who were uh, attacking their kind of premises. So like, this is a very real issue and problem that's happening. So what we're seeing is there's, of course, a lot of this um, above ground, kind of very public public uh, facing it and spectacular in terms of the broader sense of the term, spectacular demonstrations of things. But what we're seeing more and more is uh, women of color activists entering this liminal space in which they are kind of in this kind of in-between space of not quite public, not private, in order to do the work they need to do outside of the interference of both kind of far-right activities, but also outside of the gaze of governments that have taken on, normalized, and co-opted many of the messages and politics of the far right. It, it makes me think how brilliant and amazing women of colour activists are in general and how much, how innovative they are, but also like how, how in danger they constantly are as well. But that also shows how we should be understood as people that are yeah resisting and organizing and that's brilliant but when yeah when you put it like that it just really yeah rings home how just pernicious this stuff is and how it feels so much more than political yeah yeah no i mean but you'll know and then kind of your listeners will know when we've seen this spike in hate crimes post-Brexit, but also post the Mediterranean crisis, and then also post-Trump, what we see is those who are targeted on the streets are visible women of color, and particularly those who are read as Muslim and those kind of hijabi women, because, you know, they're seen as a so-called soft target to be kind of like sucker punched in the street and harassed in the street. And so understanding how women of color kind of have to navigate this new world. And so we're not saying that this harassment is new, but what we know is the frequency and the viciousness, that's what's new in public space. And so uh, women of color on the front line, and, and my God, and if you're visible and you're red as Muslim, then forget about it. So trying to understand how folks are resisting this is really important to understanding this new world that we're in. I wanted to sort of put an issue on the table that I think is really important, just following up on what Rafif just said, which is about disagreement and conflict. And in a lot of ways, I think that the space for genuine political and intellectual disagreement and conflict has been closed. So you often have people on the left, on the anti-racist left, let's say, who, if you dare disagree, if you dare, you know, engage in some kind of genuine, honest disagreement, 
with the way someone is articulating their position, with the thinking behind it, there is no space left for that because often you're called out as being racist or or some other awful thing. And we've seen that recently play out in different contexts. And I think that that only going to do our movements harm because you can't advance the thinking you can't advance the praxis. You can't advance the organizing if you cannot disagree with one another. That is something that I think has changed a lot. It feels like in the last 15 years or 10 years, even in the last decade. So I think, you know, and then there's the issue of, well, then how do you deal with conflict and how do you deal with disagreement? And maybe there's an issue of trust that actually, you know, the kind of shared politics that not shared politics that one could assume yeah there's maybe a a distrust or a suspicion about you know why one would would voice disagreement or or what have you so I think that's an important thing to put on the table how do we deal with tension how do we deal with conflict and can we even voice it without fear of being censured the exhaustion right of it's never right So like in that paper, in the politics of exhaustion paper, we quote a German Afro-feminist activist. You know, she says something like, you know, I can't get over kind of activist networks that are homophobic or transphobic or queerphobic and are kind of unreflective of these positions. But we have to work with you because we must survive fascism. And, you know, she's talking in this moment, in this context, where literally the alternative for Deutschland, the the AFD, were staging all of these kind of impromptu demonstrations and protests of the, the streets of Berlin. So, like, this is in no way abstract. It's those impossible decisions that have to be made, right? The impossibility of being fully and truly a Black woman in Berlin in this context, right? Because you, only you have to make this decision about whether you're going to be effaced in your kind of supposedly democratic radical coalition, or you're going to be effaced in the streets of Berlin confronting kind of far-right activists. Only women of color are put in this position, right? And I think that's re- that's something that I, I wish we took more seriously. But oftentimes, when this is articulated, and as you say, this is absolutely nothing new. We can talk about white woman, listen, from 1981, right? This is nothing. This is 30 years, or is it 40 years? Oh my God, it's almost 40 years. I'm so old. Anyway. uh, (laughs) Oh my God. Anyway, that's another story. It is never heard as an impossible position that women of color and black women in particular find themselves in. It's only heard as identity politics. You're fracturing the left. You're fracturing this coalition, this alliance, you know, with your crazy talk about kind of of, of, of race and gender and now oftentimes sexuality or gender identity. And I have a theory that part of the reason why every activist generation must go through this and learn the same lessons is the kind of foremothers are so exhausted and burnt out that they leave and then there isn't sufficient archiving and documenting of these positions and these struggles that we find ourselves again in the same positions because we haven't quite learned from the past because those who were struggling were so exhausted but also fed up that they were like all right I'm out. Of course that would make sense something that, that we talk about a lot like why that sort of intergenerational gap that we often have it's because, yeah, the women are so tired, they haven't got time to tell. <laughs> They're like, I'm so sick of this. Yeah, I think that's right. And especially if you've experienced the most horrendous 
forms of abuse mm-hmm. um, I think it can be very very difficult mm-hmm. you know because that's the process as a survivor isn't it of you know you, you do have to sort of identify yourself as a victim mm-hmm. to put the blame where it belongs mm-hmm. you know but then hopefully there's a process of kind of moving out of that and not mm-hmm. I, I mean I hate the victim to survivor thing you know yeah. that's really neoliberal but you know moving out of that so that you you still carry that pain, but mm. it's not necessarily in the driving seat all of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worry that sometimes it is in the driving seat all of the time. And then that's when that desire for control can become a bit problematic. And I don't want to go all cod psychology here either. Yeah. But I think there is something to do with control in our contemporary political landscape. But the naming and shaming, I mean, like, yeah, in the 70s, it, like, it was everyone. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, I was born in 76. And even that, you know, I remember when I was a teenager, there was always that friend of your dad's that would try and kiss you on the lips, oh, you know, God, do you know what I mean? Yes, kind of, yes. <laughs> every, oh, God, all the yeah, time, yeah. all the time. Yeah. And so I think, well, if we name and shame, we're going to have to name and shame everyone. Yeah. And we're going to have to fire everyone from their jobs. And we're going to have to put everyone yeah. in prison and then you know and that then goes it doesn't work and then that goes into the other thing that I talk about which is that sometimes it becomes almost a form of nimbyism you know especially in universities it's like we want these men out well okay where are they going to go okay that brings me on to something that I wanted to ask you um what I sometimes feel a little bit uncomfortable with the the politics around this in universities Mm. And that's not because I don't think it's right, but I just don't feel like within this movement of basically talking about sexual assault within universities, like how it's it's coming to the surface more, how widespread it is. Yes. Why is it, why do you think it is that when I'm in these like events or or at conferences or whatever, and we're talking about this collectively as academics, it makes me feel uncomfortable. I'm there with you. Yeah. What yeah. is it? There's something about I don't know and I don't want to have I'm not having a go at like people have done some incredible work, like they're yeah. doing some really important stuff and if that stuff had been around when things were happening to me when I was an undergrad, mm. would I have sought help from them? Maybe not. Maybe not. So who's is it who's it for in a way? Yeah. I think that's the question. And it's I'm not targeting any individuals or anything like that. It's just more the movement as a general, like, mm. what, why is it that it makes me feel a bit uneasy? Yeah, I mean, and I'm there with you as well. Okay. Um, and I've felt uncomfortable about this for a while. In fact, I've withdrawn to a large extent from it because I'm yeah. not comfortable. I mean, I yeah, maybe it's for different reasons than yes. you. I'm not comfortable with the naming and shaming. Yeah. I'm not comfortable with people who claim to be against neoliberalism then demanding incredibly punitive systems, more league tables, more Athena Swan um, benchmarking schemes in order to deal with this, or taking away funding from universities that don't deal with it, because I kind of think, well, that's just going to punish universities that don't have enough money. Yeah. So, exactly. you know, oh my God. Exactly. so the ex-polys who don't have the resources are going to then get fired. It's a bit like the failing schools, isn't yeah. it? You know, they're going to get penalised. They're going to lose funding. Then they're going to have less resources. Then, mm-hmm. you know, the whole thing kind of starts again. And the other thing is this nimbyism. So this idea of kind of sack the harassers, you know, often what happens is that we pass them on to other universities. But even if we were to get them out which of academia... Across, which is happening across the EPA. Oh, exactly. Yeah. But even if we were to get these men out of academia, what are we saying? Are we saying we want them in prison? 
Are we saying we want them on the streets? Yeah, where do we want them? Where do we want them? Because if we're saying... So Mariam Kaber, who mm. I love, mm. says there's a difference between a punishment and a consequence, right? So oh, nice. yeah, losing your job is a consequence. Never being able to work again is a punishment. So if you are going to say that um, we want these men to lose their jobs in universities, but we don't necessarily want them to never be able to work again, where are they going to work? Are they going to go and work in McDonald's? Are they going to go and work in, you know, I don't know, a garden centre where there's going to be other women there with less employment rights, less protections, maybe less kind of cultural capital? Yeah, we want them out of our elite institution. It's nimbyism, isn't it? It is. Oh, my God, some people are going to be like, I can't believe they've just said that. But you've you've just said (laughs) what that you've you've just articulated why I'm uncomfortable with it. Have I? Okay. Because that's why I'm uncomfortable as well. And I have said it before in very difficult it's like walking a tightrope isn't it is it? it's um, very difficult but and, um yeah that yeah. is powerful because sometimes class is really missing from this yes, sort of thing definitely. um and who has the capital to get their allegation heard that's right um or feel yeah. confident in their allegation or have the support around them for that allegation and also I think the discussion around safeguarding and grooming and the demands for protection, like I said to you before, I feel like that demand for protection is intrinsically white. Mm. You know, that idea that you want a white knight or a, you know yeah. somebody to ride in and protect you. Mm. I'm not saying, oh, you should do it all yourself mm. either, but I'm saying that there's a kind of appeal to the white knight or the angry dad or, mm. or whoever um, that I think comes out of whiteness. The last thing I want to say oh, is that I'm not, I'm not saying that survivors aren't entitled to spaces without perpetrators, because if you don't do something with the perpetrator, then that becomes a form of exclusion of the survivor, of right? You know, I mean, I was raped in a small community and they all closed ranks, you know, so I had to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what happens when you don't deal with it. So I'm certainly not saying that, you know, Professor Pervert should mm-hmm. be allowed to continue to do what he does with impunity, but what I am saying is that we should think about this in a systemic way yes we need to build capacity within institutions to have difficult conversations Mm -hmm. to maybe support people whose behaviors aren't completely off the charts to behave differently Um, and then we need to think in really radical ways about where are these men going to go? Who Who's next on the hit list? Mm -hmm. How many of the men that lost their jobs because of Me Too have now got new ones? And they're even more angry and hate women even more. Yes. <laughs> this was amazing. Wow. I knew it would be. You're so inspiring. Oh, bless Guys, you. early early oh. 2020, you need to get this book. We need to get this book, white women especially. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll send you a copy. I'll give yes. you a signed copy to do a giveaway with as well. But um, I'll send oh, you a you copy too. That, guys? Amazing. Um, yeah. um, thank you for joining us for our first Alternative to Women's Hour for this academic year. Thank you, Alison. Thank you so much.